San Francisco has a reputation for being extremely slow to approve new housing construction. Apartment buildings regularly take several years just to get their initial plans approved, let alone get building permits and start construction. The ongoing affordability crisis, along with state mandates, are putting the pressure on to figure out a viable plan to build much more and more quickly. The change may need to be radical, according to affordable housing developer Brian Goggin. For San Francisco to truly meet the housing need it has, it's going to need to totally rethink the way it does its planning review process. But how exactly? There are two competing measures on the ballot asking voters to approve slightly different plans that both claim to streamline the permitting process. And this isn't the first attempt to cut red tape and get housing built faster. This problem is literally decades old. State legislators have tried. Local officials have tried. And yet, it's down to voters to parse very convoluted language to try to push projects through our very convoluted planning process. I'm Laura Wenis. This week, voters are being asked to pick between two ballot measures, both claiming to get affordable housing built faster. Only one can become law. If that happens, will it actually boost construction after decades of attempts to make that happen? From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. San Francisco's planning process is often described as Byzantine. We've had this reputation for years. So in keeping with San Francisco tradition, a potential fix is now going before voters. Two, actually. Competing ballot measures both say they'll give the kind of housing we most desperately need a leg up, allowing them to skip parts of the process. One, Proposition D, has been in the works for a long time. Political moderates, with the mayor's backing, gathered signatures for a measure that would push certain projects through the process faster. That includes market rate projects with slightly more than the minimum portion of affordable units, as well as completely below market rate buildings. The Board of Supervisors, mainly its progressive members, disagreed with which kinds of projects should get prioritized. They said streamlining ought to be reserved for projects with a higher percentage of below-market-rate units, and that units in fully affordable buildings should be for lower-income people. The Board put their measure on the ballot, too, and now voters have to parse the differences and decide which, if any, is the better approach to speed up the process for certain projects. Haven't we been here before? It's not news that it takes a long time for big housing projects to get through the planning process. There's even been research about it. In 2018, Brian Goggin published a paper. You heard his voice a minute ago. He's an affordable housing developer in Virginia these days, but back then he was doing his master's at the UC Berkeley Department of City and Regional Planning. He set out to study the approvals process in San Francisco. Specifically, Goggin studied how long it takes to get housing projects approved and why. The headline finding, which is that most sizable projects in San Francisco take about four to six years from application to completion. Well, actually six years if you consider it all the way through completion to when the residents are moving in. Figuring out how long exactly it takes to get new buildings approved is not as simple as it sounds, because there's no ready-made database. I'll spare you the details, but after quite a bit of work, he found a few surprises. One, that the timeline seems to be pretty similar for mid-size and massive apartment buildings. That's unexpected because you'd think the bigger, more complex projects would take up more time, and smaller ones would be quicker to get done. 
Two, because you had to cobble together the data, there are some limitations, including that some projects couldn't be counted because they dropped off the radar, which means the average of four to six years is probably an underestimate since some projects just die or might take much longer. And third, that planners in the city tend to spend more of their working time on neighborhoods that yield overall less development. Generally speaking, Western San Francisco and areas outside downtown, they have more homeowners, more disposable income, more political power. They show up to public meetings in more force and they file lawsuits if they see something they don't like. They have a lot of influence over board of supervisors. That's a little alarming to Goggin because it doesn't seem like a good use of planners' time to be sweating over neighborhood squabbles rather than moving along big apartment complexes. Still, across the board, things take a long time. And Goggin found it comes down to San Francisco's process. Overall, housing completion timelines are mainly driven by a long city approvals process. And in real estate jargon, we call that an entitlement process. There's a lot more jargon there, but what it boils down to is that new construction projects have to be pitched to the neighborhood they'll be in. They have to go before a whole array of commissions and boards. Their impact on the environment has to be studied, which can mean not just emissions or carbon footprint, but what shadow the new building will cast, what kinds of wind tunnels it might contribute to, dust construction might kick up, and so on. And even with all these approvals, projects can get appealed. Some of these concepts are really not unique to this city, but Goggin says what stands out about San Francisco is how much discretion its various agencies can exercise. I would say other big cities, especially big growing cities on the coasts and other blue areas, especially Democratic leading areas that really like regulation, they also have extensive review processes, but not quite to the extent that San Francisco has. I think it is, depending on your perspective, the <laughs> the, uh, the best or worst uh, in, the, in the country. He describes this like a spectrum. On one end, ministerial or by-right approval. Anything that conforms with the basic rules about building in the city, like zoning, gets rubber-stamped. Minimal process. On the other end, discretionary review. Most of our planning institutions have a lot of discretion about when and how they want to intervene and what review they want to do of any project. And for many years, there have been various efforts to simplify this process, move it more toward ministerial approval. I really do mean many years. The one that blew my mind is that this has been going on for so long that there is literally a law from 1977. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that you say in your report doesn't has never really had teeth in San Francisco. What was it? Why do you say that? Well, it's called the Permit Streamlining Act from 1977 requires cities, you know, in theory, requires cities to make final determinations on a project within a given amount of time. But it's been ineffective for a number of reasons. And I think the proof is in just the amount of units that are being approved every year in San Francisco. I, I mean, now for the past decade, they've underproduced housing, especially compared to peer cities like Denver or Seattle or Austin, Texas, that are producing three to four times as much housing with around the same population. Goggin says there's no enforcement mechanism besides developers suing the city. He says most don't do that because it's risky, expensive, and complicated. Plus, it's harder to do business with a city you've taken to court. Okay, so that didn't work. Skip a few decades, though, and this really starts to look like a recurring theme. 
Take 2017. A couple things happened that year. One, a bill from State Senator Scott Weiner, known as SB 35, passed. This allowed certain projects to skip certain parts of the process, moving them more toward ministerial approval. To qualify, a project would have to provide whatever type of housing a city wasn't meeting its state-mandated minimums for. In San Francisco, that's been affordable housing for years. So SB 35 grants much faster approval to housing priced to be affordable for people earning 80% or less of the area median income. That's about $77,000 a year for an individual. I talked about SB 35 with Sujata Srivastava. She's the San Francisco director for the Bay Area urbanist think tank SPUR. Is SB 35 working in San Francisco? Is it streamlining below market rate housing? Oh, absolutely. So since SB 35 was put into place, the pace of affordable housing development has increased substantially. The numbers I last saw from the planning department were something like 2,500 units since 2018. It's been a really big boost for affordable housing developers doing low-income housing citywide. And it's also been a pathway for projects like 2550 Irving Street, which had been held up by countless community and neighborhood groups opposing the project. And they can now use SB 35 to get those low income and senior housing units built in the sunset, which is a place that has been lacking affordable housing for decades. Not everyone is this enthusiastic about SB 35. Its priorities for streamlining are tied to state-mandated housing production minimums, and those are about to be raised dramatically. Fernando Martí is the former director of a coalition of affordable housing developers called the Council of Community Housing Organizations. It's called Chuchu for short. Martí says the change to state production targets anticipates huge population growth at a time when we've just seen the city's population drop. He also says making more projects eligible for streamlining might not always result in faster construction. Once you get an entitlement, that's that planning approval, you've now added value to your parking lot or to your one-story commercial building. It is now worth a heck of a lot more because you already went through that process. You already have your approvals and you can sell that on the market. This has happened in San Francisco in recent years, but it's hard to say what motivated it or how frequent or widespread a problem it really is. There are many reasons why projects might not get built. Roughly 40,000 units in San Francisco are at least partway through their approvals process, but haven't broken ground. Back to 2017. The second streamlining effort that year was a local one. Ed Lee was mayor at the time he issued a decree to all city agencies that dealt with housing approvals that basically said, cut the time in half. Buildings not subject to state environmental review law should take no more than six months to get approved. Housing that needs a full environmental review should take no longer than a year and a half. I asked Srivastava about the results. I don't think that's happened. If that's the case, why, in your opinion? Well, because that really only addresses what the city can do internally in the planning department. And I think the planning department has made a lot of efforts to try to streamline their processes, which is great. But that doesn't actually address the fact that you still have to go through these countless boards and commissions to get a project review. So it can still get held up by the planning commission. It could still be held up by the historic landmarks commission. There are lots of bodies that can still stop a project and ask you to go back and redesign and cut a story or 
add more open space. And it's all very discretionary and very politicized. There was another attempt a couple of years later to shave more time off the kind of project that everyone can agree San Francisco needs. Here's Fernando Marti, formerly with that Coalition of Affordable Developers. So in 2019, the voters of San Francisco passed Prop E, which required a maximum amount of time for 100% affordable and for teacher housing, educator housing, up to 180 days that it would take to go through that whole environmental review process and for the planning department to approve a project. There is teacher housing being built. One project broke ground in August, but it's fair to say San Francisco doesn't have a flood of new teacher housing. Which brings us to today, with two competing measures on the ballot, both of them claiming to make affordable housing happen faster. We'll get into those after a break. Despite several different efforts to streamline San Francisco's housing approvals process, it's still slow. Fernando Marti, formerly with the Coalition of Affordable Housing Developers, and Sujata Srivastava with the Urban Think Tank, have both been involved with the city's newest streamlining efforts, the ones that are on your November ballot. Srivastava helped figure out Proposition D. Marti helped with this year's Proposition E, not to be confused with the 2019 measure with the same letter about teacher housing. These two measures are on slightly different parts of that spectrum that I talked about earlier. Ministerial approval versus discretionary review. Proposition D tries to move away from discretionary review. This charter amendment doesn't try to solve it all. We felt like it would be an important first step, but it does open the pathway for the Board of Supervisors to add additional categories of housing projects in the future if they wanted to, to this list of projects that we are expediting through property. It sounds to me like it's just not politically viable right now to go straight to buy-right approvals. (laughs) That's right. I think, you know, we're trying to figure out the majority of projects would fall into these categories. And so we felt like, let's let's start with multifamily projects. Let's start with 100% affordable housing and mixed income projects that are exceeding the inclusionary rate. And let's see how, how much housing we can achieve through those changes and then hopefully expand the categories in the future and create even more impact. Marti, formerly with the Coalition of Affordable Developers, sees it differently. Bypass the amount of time that it should take to do all that review. Are you providing a better project than your neighbor? But I guess I'm asking, is our process now better in some way than having ministerial review for everything? For a lot of projects, yes. I think that, again, there... You know, and it's it's philosophical, right? Yeah. Is is your philosophy that the developer should have the right to do whatever they want with their land within limits, within right? the rules that we've set, or yeah. is the philosophy that there's a community in place that the value of that land really depends on that community, right? It, there is a whole history that created the value of that land. And a developer who's wanting to do something with that land needs to develop that in partnership with that community. Props D and E are competing with one another, and the philosophies behind them differ. But they both aim to speed up the process for projects that offer affordable housing, because predictability and avoiding delays is critical for developers. 
you could start a project when you know, let's say there is, if it's an affordable housing project, you know that there is money in the pool for a certain kind of tax credits and you need to be moving this fairly quickly, right? And so having certainty about the maximum amount of time is really important. That is now, that maximum amount of time is actually set into city law through 2019's Prop E. Mm-hmm. Both of these ordinances actually set a maximum amount of time to the things that are before the voters into the charter. So it sort of elevates it to another level, but it's already in the law. So why do we need this one? Uh, <laughs> one of the things that we hear from market rate developers all the time is how much money or profit it costs to have projects be delayed, right? It And so it is a profit to have your project streamlined. So what should give you preferential treatment to jump to the front of the line? In 2019, we already did that for 100% affordable and educator projects. Prop D and E say we're also going to do that for projects that deliver more than the minimum inclusionary housing. So we have an affordable housing crisis. We're going to look to the market to deliver some of that, a very small amount, but through inclusionary units. Inclusionary units refers to below market rate housing that's built as part of a market rate development rather than in fully affordable projects. I wanted to know the same thing from Sujata Srivastava with Spur from the Prop D perspective, especially since she says that state law we talked about, SB 35, is working really well. Why do we need another streamlining measure? So SB 35 is wonderful. It is set to sunset in 2025. Mm. In an ideal world, San Francisco should have affordable housing construction as a huge priority. We need to have a local pathway to creating those opportunities. Prop D is also building off of SB 35 and expanding the categories of housing that could be expedited so that while we recognize the need to continue building at for, for low-income renters, we also want to create opportunities for moderate income, first-time home buyers. We also want to create opportunities for mixed-income projects to be accelerated, and we want to create more opportunities for teacher housing and housing for all our workers. So, you know, Prop D is really just building off of SB 35 and also creating that local option. If all of the above that we've talked about now have not been enough, why would Prop D now get us to a point where we are actually producing as much housing as we need to be? Well, Prop D doesn't do everything, right? I mean, it's Mm -hmm. great to, this first step is to clean up the house, make sure that your processes aren't actually an obstacle or a barrier to developing projects. But there are a lot of other things, a lot of other tools in the toolbox. This is just one very important one. If you don't have the process right, then everything else just becomes a lot harder to do. And this decision about what the right process is, what would not be an obstacle, is going to the voters. The reason is because this kind of change is a charter amendment, and the city's equivalent to the Constitution can't change without voter input. Unfortunately, that also means voters have to figure out and vote on pretty detailed differences between measures. Most voters aren't developers, so it can be hard to say with certainty what would really kickstart affordable housing development. So SF Next reporter Noah Arroyo asked developers what they think of these measures. It was a mixed bag. 
I spoke to some developers who said to me, neither of these propositions is going to make a big difference, as in neither of them will unjam the logjam of real estate development in San Francisco. And I spoke to some developers who said the opposite. I spoke to one who said that both of these would help, and one who said that they preferred Prop E, which has arguably the higher costs attached to it. More so demands of developers who seek streamlining. Exactly. It, it would demand a, a higher standard of labor. It would demand more of the below market rate units in market rate projects than Prop D. And that person said, well, these projects would easily pencil out because there is so much savings in how much faster the development process would move. But that was just one guy. Well, it was one guy, but look, these are expert sources. And that one guy was part of an, an investment trust that funds projects, affordable housing and market rate projects in San Francisco and in other cities. So, you know, take any anecdote with a grain of salt. These are good anecdotes. Here's the problem. As a reporter, I want to know, and I think the public should know, what most developers would say or what, let's say, what market forces leave most developers facing mm -hmm. when they're trying to get these projects done. The city does try to take those market forces into consideration. A task force just recently convened that every three years figures out if the threshold requirements for affordable housing should change. They're reviewing how many below market rate units each market rate development could reasonably be expected to include or pay for and making a recommendation to the Board of Supervisors. That process is starting now, and it's expected to wrap up early next year. Do either of these measures permanently change the way that our entitlements process works? Like when we say streamlining, is it streamlining the process, or is it just giving certain projects a faster process? Neither of these measures requires anything of any project. Let's be clear. This is about whether projects want to try to get streamlining. And if they do, then they can jump through certain hoops. They can satisfy certain criteria. Jump through more hoops to jump through fewer hoops. That should be the headline <laughs> on this podcast episode. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. One huge hurdle for a lot of projects is a state environmental law called CEQA for short, the California Environmental Quality Act. Environmental review is a lengthy and complex process, but the act has also been used as the basis for appeals and lawsuits that can stall or block projects. Both propositions eliminate that possibility for market rate projects that have enough affordable units to be streamlined. Where they differ is for projects that are only affordable housing. Right now, the Board of Supervisors has the authority to approve or reject spending large amounts of public money on those projects. Prop D would remove that authority for streamlined projects. The measure's backers say it leaves projects open to delays and being politicized. Prop E retains the authority, which supporters say will prevent the misuse of public funds. Either camp would probably argue that it's part of a long-term strategy to ultimately fix things. Now, whether that strategy works is a big question because... I don't have full insight into what all the subsequent steps would be. And ultimately, either of those strategies has to survive our fractious political system or our fractious politics in San Francisco, because we've got two sides that on many key issues do not agree with each other. These measures are a direct illustration of that. I will tell you, there are still elements of both measures that I think I could spend more reporting on. That's me. What about voters? 
you know, so they, they have full-time jobs. So they're supposed to achieve the level of understanding of like a legislative analyst, a wise decision about policy, this complex policy. I feel for them. I think it is a valid question to ask whether this is a proper way to govern. And in fact, you asked a legislator that, Scott Weiner, and what did he say? He said the fact that there were two propositions that hit the ballot that are competing with each other rather than one that resulted from successful negotiations, that that was an example of a political breakdown in San Francisco. This decision is being made at a time when San Francisco is under considerable pressure to figure out its plan for building more housing. State housing production minimums are going up, and San Francisco needs to put together a plan to build on the order of 82,000 units in less than a decade. Its current plan has been rejected by the state. If the city is still out of compliance by early next year, it could lose substantial affordable housing and transit funding from the state. Noncompliance at that point would also trigger something called the builder's remedy. This is a clause that dramatically relaxes rules about what can be built where. Check out the October 11th episode of the Chronicle's podcast, Fifth and Mission, if you want to hear more about all this. Reporter J.K. Deneen lays it all out. No matter what voters decide next week, though, or whether the city comes up with a plan to build all this housing that the state will approve of, there's one more looming issue that Fernando Marti brings up. The money. What we're seeing right now, even as we're coming out of the pandemic, is that construction is stalled, right? It's about the economy. It's about investment. And since we don't have control over investors, we only have control over public investment. If we're going to really talk about a solution to the housing affordability crisis that has to do with production, then it has to do with public investment. And unless you do that, then it's, it's, you're just coming up with false solutions. Who will pay for all this housing San Francisco has to build? Another question that will probably go before voters eventually. For now, all they have to do is streamline the city's planning process. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. And we want to check out your ideas. Do you have a solution you want the city to pursue? Do you know someone who's making a difference on an important issue? Send an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. You can also DM us on Twitter, we're at SF Next. I'm Laura Wenis. Next time on Fixing Our City, Portugal is famous for having decriminalized certain drugs. Listeners and readers have told us maybe we should look to Portugal as a model. So we'll talk to the Portuguese official who handles drug policy. See you next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext.